Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and here as always is David Scott. Great to be back, Paul. Thank you. Uh, and our guest on the show this week after, uh, you know, we got some major updates on the inflation outlook and uh, we got all sorts of data in there on trends and prices across the economy. Uh, a lot of implications in there for Australian monetary policy. Um, and our guest to discuss all of this is one of our regulars on the show and one of the finance industry's foremost commentators on inflation trends. It's Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Welcome back, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, we're going to talk um, on the show about inflation. We're going to look at the difference between headline and core inflation. Japan actually has a core core inflation, uh, as they, they call it, which is uh, one of my favorite economic data releases. It's out tomorrow uh, as well. Um, go the core core. Um, so we're going to look at the headline figures, we'll look at the core figures, and we're going to talk about uh, the RBA governor's speech, which was a bit of an anticlimax, I thought. Um, but he did say some really interesting things on the causes of weak wages growth, um, which is just an incredibly central issue um, to the outlook uh, for not just for people's own pay packets and, and, and what they're taking home each week, but of course, when you roll that all up, it makes a big difference to the economy. So it's been a huge week, and as we're recording, the Australia, Australian dollar uh, is back above 80 cents, and in fact, 80.58 is when I saw it last, um, which is getting rather high, David. It is getting a little bit high. The, uh, the question is, is it getting too high for the RBA? Um, nothing that we've seen so far suggests that uh, they are becoming very, uh, very upset about its level, but I'm sure that uh, given the current trajectory, if it keeps going, then uh, there's probably a high likelihood that we'll, uh, we'll see some, uh, some jawboning enter the fray potentially uh, as soon as uh, next Tuesday's um, uh, monetary policy meeting. Absolutely. And of course, um, Duan, the, you know, the level of the currency is uh, so important. Uh, to the uh, to the inflation outlook, um, maybe you can talk just a little bit. Just explain for pe- for those people who may not follow this closely, um, why the level of the currency just flows through so, so is so important to to um, to the RBA and to the inf- inflation outlook. Sure. Well, it's important for the RBA from both an inflation and a growth perspective. So uh, often we talk about, or economists talk about, monetary conditions, which is the interest rate and the exchange rate. So in effect, uh, a high or low exchange rate can stimulate or contract the economy just in the same way as the RBA's cash rate does. So that's why it's important. How does it feed through? Well, it it feeds through by changing the relative price of uh, what we buy from offshore and what foreigners buy from us. So when the currency is appreciating, as it is now, as you said, it's above 80 cents, that makes what we buy from offshore cheaper and what, um, uh, you know, uh, tourists buy onshore actually a little bit more expensive. So that sort of sounds like a good thing. You know, I guess you look at your overseas holiday and you think it looks a little bit cheaper, unless you've just been away like I have, in which case you're feeling a bit sad about it. Uh, But what it does do is it reduces the cost of imported inputs uh, and that can flow through into lower prices into the economy and therefore into a low inflation environment. Now, 
low inflation itself is not bad, but uh, very low inflation or prolonged periods of low inflation uh, can be negative for the economy. And, and obviously the case study for that is around Japan mm. and the fact that, you know, effectively you delay consumption, you delay activity because of the expectation that prices will be lower in the future. Um, and of course, you know, uh, if we're, we're looking at the inflation outlook, um, we had just the, the quarterly C- CPI uh, released this week at the Consumer Price Index. Um, and uh, as has been the case with a lot of inflation readings over um, the last uh, few years, uh, it missed to the downside at the headline level. Uh, now, we're going to get on to the uh, all-important core measures in, in a little bit. But, um, Dave, headline inflation over the quarter only plus two, 0.2% um, and leaving it up 1.9% uh, for, from a year earlier. Um, and that was uh, well below where it was expected, hey? It was. It was uh, half the rate expected for the quarter. It was 0.4 was the other uh, median economist forecast. And uh, the, the annual rate decelerated from uh, from 2.1% in the prior quarter. So uh, another very soft outcome. I think uh, Joe will probably uh, talk on this uh, a little bit later. But uh, the, the big surprise was the uh, there was no real big spike in, uh, in fruit prices uh, as a result of uh, – the, uh, the tropical cyclone that came through Australia's east coast uh, around the uh, the start of the other uh, quarter, uh, which then flowed through to uh, to prices that I know that I saw for uh, for tomatoes and whatnot uh, were extremely expensive where I live, um, but that uh, that didn't flow through, and that probably explains why the uh, the, the core reading was sorry the uh, the the headline reading was so weak. And of course, the headline reading is so important because that's what we see sort of reported in the news. Um, and uh, can have a, a really important uh, impact on how people are thinking about price rises, which then might feed into the wages story too. Correct. You know, if you, you think about uh, when you're going for a pay uh, pay review with your boss, and uh, you know, it comes down to the nitty gritty of no negotiating, you say like, "Oh no, I think I'm worth you know three, four percent, five percent even." Maybe you're uh, pushing your luck, and then they'll go and say, oh, "Okay, well, the, uh, the, the currently at CPI is running at uh, at one point nine percent per annum." And, Business conditions are pretty tough at the moment as well. So I can only go and offer you just like on 1.9 or whatnot. Uh, and that feeds through to, uh, to wage uh, negotiations and, and other areas as well. Um, so it's, it's, it can become entrenched where you think that there's never going to be an uptick in inflation which means that you might not think that you should go and worthy of a pay increase and whatnot. So you can see that the longer it stays low, the more that mindset becomes entrenched, the more problematic it can become. And also that has implications for spending in the economy and whatnot. Uh, obviously, if you don't have your wage increasing, that means that you're probably going to have no, not as much income as you'd like to go and spend in the economy. So a whole lot of different things, uh, which makes it uh, a little bit unsettling the longer it stays this low. I think the other thing, sorry, just to jump in there is uh, bear in mind also a lot of contracts are based on CPI, uh, whether that's straight CPI or CPI plus. So it feeds into a lot of contracts, which, which sounds like a business uh, impact, but actually a lot of uh, individuals have contracts that actually relate uh, to CPI. And also, whilst in uh, financial markets and economists and the RBA talk about core inflation, the reality is for households, they face headline inflation. It is actually the price increases that they are seeing uh, for the average sort of basket of goods that they consume. Absolutely. So just looking through um, actually some of the details, I've got them here um, when you go across the groups. Um, so... Um, you know, um, do not have bad habits in this country. Basically, alcohol <laughs> and tobacco up almost six percent for the year. Um, don't care about your health. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't worry about your um, your health because health costs, um, which uh, obviously so uh, important um, to people. Um, you know, uh, they're looking at three point eight percent inflation over the year. 
Um, looking at education costs um, rising at 3.3% over the year. So these are, you know, um, insurance and financial services, right, 2.1% over the year. So you're starting to look, well, there's actually the prices of a lot of things are actually going up. Um, however, um, you get into some of the big bad boys, um, and particularly clothing and footwear. And I know, Joe, you watch the uh, retail sector very, very closely. Uh, that sector prices there are in outright deflation down almost 2%, 1.9% um, over the year. So what's going on there? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, if you look at across retail, whether that's uh, food prices or supermarket prices, whether that's clothing and footwear, uh, we've seen, you know, really quite um, significant price falls over a period of time actually now. Uh, I actually did start to think that maybe in clothing and footwear we were sort of at the peak of that downward pressure, but actually in this Q2 data, the clothing number particularly particularly uh, was very weak and particularly men's clothing actually uh, in seasonally adjusted terms was extremely weak. So we really are still seeing that uh, that impact on the retail sector. But it's not just in those sectors, it's starting to broaden. And again, this data this week sort of showed that we saw uh, outright sort of weakness in outdoor camping and sports equipment and also weaker than expected numbers in homewares and furnishings. And so these are all things that are open to um, international competition, some via the internet and some via foreign firms that are actually opening up stores here. And we're seeing this, and now we also know, of course, that Amazon is coming. So we expect this uh, competition factor uh, to continue to play quite an important role in the inflation outlook, actually, for the next you know, three, four years, not just for the next quarter or so. Yeah, so, and, and it looks like, you know, so we, uh, the typical examples, the easy ones to rattle off are H&M, Zara, uh, the likes of those coming in. Um, where they're big global, um, they've got big global footprints. They've got very large supply chains. Um, you know that they that they you know can leverage the economies of scale that they get out of those kind of things. Um, they also tend. I think one of the things that surprises uh, Australian tourists when they travel overseas is what good value, even with an exchange rate the way it is at the moment, what good value you know uh, fashion can be in places like Europe and and the US. Um, so. That some of that lower pricing is starting to move its way into the Australian market as these guys come in, and sometimes um, you know eating some margin, uh, you know, uh, being willing to um, uh, have low prices where the, the, maybe the, the the Australian operation doesn't um, doesn't make that much money, if any, um, but that they're um, serving consumers, they're getting consumers are getting the brands they want um, and they're able to people are able to connect with those brands that you know these companies spend huge amounts uh, globally on marketing themselves and building up those brands and I think Australian consumers can feel a lot of the time well you know what it's great that we're able to access this um, and but what it does is in the retail sector huge industry and it's crushing margins um, uh, you know putting pressure on margins uh, across the board well I think it is crushing margins so you're absolutely right you know for consumers they're facing greater choice and lower prices so that sounds that sounds good uh, but we are seeing a retail sector that's really under a lot of pressure and of course even top shop has gone into voluntary administration so that suggests that even some of these foreign retailers are starting to get close to the bone if you like on margins. One of the other impacts, which I think is only just starting to play out, but is actually really important, uh, is around the labour market um, part of the retail sector. We're actually seeing retail jobs now in outright decline. And part of that is foreign competitors making Australian companies more, you know, being forced to be more efficient and find gains. But actually, we know that foreign retailers have a lower employee uh, per floor space ratio than domestic players. Um, I think players. With, with, if you compare Aldi to the major local chains, it's like 
orders of sort of three or four. And the same in, in clothing, absolutely. Yeah. So retail traditionally has been quite a big employer in this country and we've actually got outright job losses there. So yeah. when you think about the labour market and the comments that Dave was making about uh, you know, wages, one of our key sort of sectors is actually seeing job losses. Yeah, second largest employer in the country behind uh, healthcare. So you go and weaken that and, uh, and all the benefits that come from having uh, lower prices and whatnot will be quickly offset by people losing their jobs. And that's obviously not going to be uh, great for the economy. So absolutely the weakness in – there's weakness in some of those important components of the, where we see the headline inflation rate. But turning to the core stuff, which, as Joe, you mentioned, is what the RBA tends to look at. Uh, there was a bit of a different picture there. Um, maybe we'll start with um, let's get let's get clear on what core inflation is. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, core inflation is uh, you know a term that most central banks uh, look at, and basically what what it tries to do is take out some of the volatility in the headline CPI. So, in Australia, uh, for one, headline CPI is not seasonally adjusted. So we do have prices that go up you know, in the same time every year. or So, for example, your private health insurance goes up on the 1st of April. So that always um, boosts inflation in Q2, for example. Uh, electricity prices always go up on the 1st of July. So uh, f- the underlying measures are seasonally adjusted. Uh, so that helps to smooth out some of that volatility and get a better sense of the real, I, I sort of call it the price pulse, if you like. Um, so it may not be what consumers are actually seeing in terms of what they face in a nominal sense, but it really tells you broadly where inflation is going. There's lots of ways you can measure it. Uh, in Australia, we sort of have three ways and then we kind of average them out. Uh, so the first one is is a trimmed mean where you basically – uh, we look at all the prices and you take out the, the top 15% and the bottom 15% and then you average it out. So it kind of gets rid of the tail, if you like. Uh, we have another measure called the weighted median, uh, which uh, again tries to adjust for uh, the weights and components of particular items. And then we also look at something simply called CPI X volatiles, where we take out things like fuel uh, and tobacco, which is uh, highly regulated. And, of course, fuel something that the um, RBA can't do much about. We import it. Uh, so that's also another measure. Um, and I think what was really interesting in this week's release is that all three had um, very similar numbers and really quite solid numbers. Mm-hmm. So um, and a very slight uptick as well. A very slight uptick. I mean, you sort of have to um, squint to see it, if you like. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, you know, I'm an economist, so I'm allowed to caveat everything. But, you know, we were sort of saying there's there's some very small signs that it's nudging higher. Uh, and uh, But, uh, you know, it is sort of true. I mean, we can measure it in a few ways. Uh, if you just look at the quarterly growth rates of those core measures, they are slowly sneaking up, you know, from 0.51 to 0.53. It doesn't sound like much, but... But this is after seven or eight quarters where they've consistently disappointed. Um, we also look at what we call a six-month and annualised. So we basically take the last two quarters and we times it by two, effectively. So it gives us a more current measure of inflation than year-on-year measures. And that's actually sitting at 2.1. It's actually up yeah, quite right. sharply. Mm-hmm. And that is a measure that the RBA or a way that the RBA do look at it. They, they look at that six-month and annualised number. We also do something uh, – 
in-house at ANZ where we, we look at it, what's called a diffusion index. So we basically count, literally count the number of items that have an annualized price increase of 2.5% or more. Now, why 25 Well, that's because it's the midpoint of the RBA's 2 to 3 band. So if you think about that simply, you have to have at least half your basket growing faster than 25 to get a 2.5% inflation rate. And that's been running at um, all-time lows, well below its decade average, but it's started to tick up. Now, again, very modestly, but I actually think this started this week, you know, it confirms that inflation pressures have stabilised. And as I said, if you squint, this kind of signs that it looks a little bit better. And I think that would be really encouraging for the RBA. Yeah. Um, David, um, how did you read? So you um, had a, a busy day this week um, with with everything that was happening. Um, so how, what was your read on, on the inflation on the inflation report? Oh, look, the headline reading was soft, but uh, the core reading, which is still, to me, far more important in terms of the outlook for interest rates and uh, and the Australian dollar and what the uh, Reserve Bank would do in the future, um, as Joe said, you know, there is some signs that there is just a very small acceleration. You know, year on year, we saw uh, the uh, the core measure move up to 1.84%, um, and that was actually, you know, just a smidgen above what the RBA was forecasting in their latest uh, statement of monetary policy, which was 1.75. So that's... Still below their two to three percent target ban, but it will give them confidence that the the inflation rate is moving back into that band. So that pretty much eliminates you know, any near term prospects of a, of a rate cut. Um, and obviously, the d- discussion we've seen recently is whether that will start to translate to, you know, potentially a little bit of wage pressures in the future, uh, and potentially, you know, a, a rate hike from the RBA some point next year. So the other big thing that happened was we got that data. And then just an hour and a half later, um, the, uh, uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, gave a speech um, at the Annika, Annika Foundation uh, lunch, which is a forum that um, governors, well, and Glenn Stevens, um, w- when he was uh, governor, would um, some, did use in the past to um, say some things that the, the market, you know, um, you'd have traders um, with their trigger fingers at the ready. Uh, listening to every word that he said, particularly in the, in the question and answer session. Um, now, uh, Lowe had an opportunity uh, to um, talk about the dollar in a way that he could have made some implications that, that you know, he could have given some signals, basically. Um, uh, but he didn't really. Um, he said that maybe, you know, the dollar would be better if it was lower. Um, but he didn't say it needs to be lower. Um, so what was your take on it, Dave? Well, you're right. It was a fizzer. So anyone in the uh, financial markets who was looking to go and uh, you know, trade around that event would have been sadly disappointed and, uh, and probably a bit, uh, bit annoyed that they uh, forego their lunch to go and, and listen to it. But it was a great speech. You know, he, uh, Lowen discussed a whole lot of uh, factors, why, uh, why rate wages have been so weak, not just in Australia but uh, around the world. And I talked about specifically here, you know, this increased labor market slack than what we've seen in the past, um, technology, you know, job security fears, all things that he went and, uh, and discussed. Um, the thing that I took out of it is that uh, they're putting a lot of faith in that there's going to be a small uh, acceleration in wage inflation coming through in the, uh, the years ahead, which is central to their forecast that inflation is going to start moving back into the band and you're going to start seeing a little bit of an uptick in, uh, in economic growth. So the big point that I took out of it was that upcoming wage releases and also as a byproduct of that, all the labour market data we're going to see over the next uh, next few months will go a long way to determining what we're going to see in terms of wage inflation and also probably the outlook for interest rates. Absolutely. And um, Joe, I suppose in some ways 
it's understandable that he didn't want to say too much because they've just got to wait and see a little bit, don't they? Um, uh, for for the next few months, see if we're what we saw in the in the CPI data, for example. There's a few other signs, uh, particularly when you look at the environment globally. Um, seems to be things seem to be picking up a little bit um, in uh, particularly Australia's um, key markets, yeah. key trading markets. Um, so um, China, uh, you know, uh, the European Union. Um, there's some. Um, Good strength there, um, a bit of momentum showing. Um, so it's in some ways inflation looking to have stabilized. Um, they don't want to add to the medium-term risks by m- adding more stimulus to the property market. Um, so you know, let's just wait and see for a little while, and and um, uh, you know, do a philosophical conversation on on wages, on wages pressures, um, but nothing directly on the currency. Uh, look, I think that's right. Um, I mean, the the other element, obviously, you talked about wages. Uh, I actually thought one of the, I think it was in the Q&A where he said, you know, it's hard to get inflation at two and a half when wages are going at two. So so that tells you kind of what they're looking at and what they need to see to become more confident that inflation moves back in their band. And, and the conversation around wages was really interesting. And it's not an issue just in Australia. It's actually an issue globally. This sort of globally, something is different happening in this cycle around wages. The other interesting thing, though, I thought that he talked about was the framework with which they think about monetary policy and just re-emphasising that financial stability is a key sort of part of that. And uh, not everyone would, would agree with this, but, you know, I think that's different from sort of two or three years ago. I think that emphasis on financial stability intensified when Governor Lowe uh, took office and there were some small but quite important shifts in the language around his agreement with Treasury. Uh, so I actually think in addition to the labour market and wages data, I actually do think the housing market's going to be quite important when we assess where monetary policy is going. In terms of the Aussie, look, you know, obviously the Aussies pushed a, a above 80 cents. I'm sure that's very uncomfortable for them, uh, for the RBA. Uh, it's a little less robust on a TWI basis, which is actually what matters for their inflation outlook uh, and for their growth outlook. Uh, next week, we'll get an update of the RBA's forecast next Friday in their statement on monetary policy, and they'll need to feed through uh, the currency. So they tend to assume a flatline currency in their numbers and it tends to be a, sort of an average roughly of the week before they do their numbers. So um, on our, our calculation, the TWI will be a bit, about 5% higher than it was when they did their May forecasts. Mm. And generally, the RBA mechanically feed that through into their inflation numbers. So it will give them a little bit of a drag on the inflation front. Yeah. So do you think they're going to go and downgrade their inflation forecast, particularly their core inflation forecast? Uh, look, I actually don't think so. I think that um, the strong point five that you've got has, has sort of saved the day, if you like. So, uh, I, you know, generally they do mechanically feed it through. Um, so we, we've had a look at that. But I think the fact they've got this sort of more solid base gives them a, um, a bit of scope to leave. Uh, certainly the, the forecasts in the, in the table, which are in a band. Um, you know, I find it quite interesting because last uh, in the last SOMP they had that uh, point estimate of 2.1 at the at mid 2019 for core inflation, but a band of two to three, which looked at perhaps um, a little cute. Uh, and now they're you know that 2.1. I think they've got enough to stay above two, uh, which means I think they'll keep the two to three percent band for for core inflation. Uh, we do think they may nudge their activity numbers down a little bit, uh, partly reflecting the Q1 release. Yeah, near, near term, they'd have to definitely go and downgrade. It would take a miracle for uh, you know, to go and get to the levels that they were speaking like at the end of this year. Yep. Uh, so there's there's 
every likelihood that you'll see a downgrade. But uh, you know, longer term, you know, I can't see anything that's uh, that's going to go and upset the Apple card in terms of their longer term view of, uh, of GDP growth. No, I don't think too much longer term, although, again, they'll feed through a higher Aussie and they'll f- uh, feed through market pricing for interest rates. So they'll put in a, a rate hike into their numbers, again, quite mechanically. Yeah. So we're looking at, I think, May was priced in, but it might have been pushed back. Yes, it's now in the second half of next year for it's fully priced for a, a rate hike. And to be honest, the higher the Aussie dollar continues to go, you'll probably see that going pull back even a little bit further. Yeah. Um, so maybe November uh, next year. Um, might might be a Melbourne Cup day next year, or maybe Melbourne Cup this year. If some, if some people are correct. <laughs> I, f- I find it very hard to build a case for this year. Yeah. So do I. I the, the, one of the other key takeaways from uh, from low speech was that you no know, rates uh, are on hold for the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, as you said, you no. Know, compared to his predecessor, uh, Glenn Stevens, you know, financial stability is a, is a big part of his mm-hmm. uh, his mandate. Um, and obviously, he made uh, specific mention to the housing market in particular and, and the financial risk attached to that, which just went to go and solidify that no rates are going nowhere fast. Sure. Um, I, I did think um, there was a couple of things, just back just back on the wages picture, picture quickly, a couple of things that he pointed out which I, I thought were interesting. Not exactly, um, but particularly if anybody listens to this show regular, regularly, um, it's not new and I don't think it's terribly surprising, but just the fact that you know, the, the governor of a central bank is, is talking about this um, as, a, as, a, as a dynamic that's at work in the economy and one of it is around people's job security and the fears of either being replaced by uh, some form of automated uh, process and we're facing competition from 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 automation uh, or being he specifically pulled out um, some examples of people in professional services in Sydney and Melbourne who worry about their job being taken by somebody in Chengdu um, that that you know what we would traditionally maybe think of areas where there wouldn't be global competition so say financial services in Sydney, uh, that, um, you know, you wouldn't think that somebody in Chengdu might be able to, or, or Bangalore or whatever, might be able to perform that function for the, the customer. Um, but he's saying that actually people are, are um, starting to think about that, and that's some of the stuff that he's hearing coming back from the market. He did make uh, one little uh, wisecrack as well, which was that, uh, you know, he hears this uh, all around the, the place that, you know, um, people are looking over their shoulder. At, uh, and but he said importantly that he doesn't count himself um, among that you know among that group because uh, one of the advantages of having a fixed seven years a seven year term uh, so good on him but uh, it really is an interesting um, an interesting point for him to make because this is an issue around the world now um, in, in advanced economies where just wages are going nowhere and um, he was specifically talking about that potentially people being a little bit less secure. Um, in their work. Look, I think that's right. Um, you know, and we hear that, we call it dread risk, and it's certainly been yeah. been around and, and maybe accelerating. And we see that in our ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey, where confidence about the economy is um, quite elevated, uh, whereas confidence around personal finance is actually, it's popped up in the last couple of weeks, but actually has trended lower mm. this year. I sort of find that globalisation um, argument, I think it's really fascinating, and it's, it's certainly impacting across all economies. But th- there is a flip side to it, you know, there's people that are worried about their jobs, but equally, as a, as a country, we're actually able now to export services that we couldn't export before. Mm. So, you know, healthcare is something we are now exporting. Ten years ago, that would have 
have seemed impossible, but we're exporting healthcare, we're exporting um, architectural services, we're exporting financial planning services and uh, education as well. Education and, and, and free trade agreements like Chafter are actually opening up these services. So on the one hand, it is um, perhaps a, a risk for your job, but on the other hand, we're creating new jobs uh, in areas where as a country we do have a competitive advantage. That's right. And being able to access markets that are vastly bigger than yes. um, than what you're able to tap either here. And if you just go to our immediate neighborhood, you know, um, say uh, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, um, maybe a bit of Indonesia. Um, but now, like China, Japan, um, all of these, these are vast, um, uh, increasingly wealthy uh, markets, particularly China, um, I guess. So, and and um, the, the people there, the population there are looking for, they're, because you've had this huge wealth creation, it's a source of new demand for new products and services. So um, I was looking at some trade figures during the week, and you just look at the the rapid increase in um, uh, the export volumes of things like beef um, to China, um, and it's it's uh, it's amazing. If you go back over over mm. a f- say five year period, uh, it's incredible. Um, and, and it's also, also things- a premium product. Mm. Uh, increasingly, so it's not just the volume of beef, but it's the profit margin that we make on premium wines, premium beef. Uh, Australia is geographically well placed, and also, you know, has a very solid global reputation for good, clean, quality produce. Yeah, Correct. clean, clean and green. Yeah, yeah. You think about it. just to our north, you know, coming from India uh, across to uh, to China and uh, no, the ASEAN region, you're talking about three billion people. Three billion people who are all you know having their uh, lifestyles, their wealth improved. Uh, and as time progresses, more and more people will want demand for high-quality goods and services. So that's an incredibly strong opportunity for this country. It certainly, it certainly is one of the things that makes me very optimistic about the sort of medium, medium, long-term outlook. Um, I heard uh, an amazing sort of picture painted uh, by somebody recently about, you know, this, the future of um, dining with beef in China, uh, where you'll have, you know, and he was just envisioning this this time in the future where you know, the beef menu will almost be like a wine menu and you'll have the beef expert who'll come and talk to you about the different kinds of beef and the provenance of them and that through agricultural technology where you're able to monitor rainfall levels, uh, heat and um, you know talk about the type of grass and the, the um, aspect of the, the um, pasture that they can talk about flavour and um, the result of that in the beef. Um, that sounds complicated <laughs> on my ordering. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, know. I know, I just want a steak, please. Um, <laughs> but this whole thing of, well, let's go for the very top mm. cut of Australian beef that's on the, um, that's on the menu and being able to pitch um, that as, a, as an export line uh, is very promising. Particularly so the important thing for Australia is around making sure that we keep the value-added process onshore. Yeah, exactly right. No, the three industries, education, healthcare, and agriculture, to me, are where Australia should go and be putting all of our energies in. You talk about the innovations boom. I'd say, like, no, innovate in those particular three sectors, and we'll do just fine. Mm. What about tourism? Uh, tourism, I think, will be always there. It's, it's, it's uh, you know... No disrespect to other parts of the world, but uh, I've had the opportunity and have been lucky enough to go and uh, travel around many parts of the world. And whilst there's many fascinating and beautiful spots... Um, anyone who comes to Australia, it's hard to say that it's not a great place to go and, and be like, you know, flying in on, a, on an A380 overlooking Sydney Harbour or, you know, flying into uh, the Gold Coast and, and the, just the clean air, the surf, 
Um, yes, you know, you've got the other parts of the world which, you know, are pretty and whatnot, but uh, we're so naturally blessed with that stuff. I think the tourism sector will take care of itself. We've just got to make sure that we actually go and, you know, pay uh, close attention to looking after our guests and not just letting the natural beauty do the, uh, the work for us. That's right, and keep them away from the 6 o'clock news on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Society's falling apart. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, our guest on the show this week is senior economist at uh, ANZ, Joanne Masters. And Joanne, um, you published a great bit of uh, research this week um, on changes in um, the energy sector. Uh, we touched a little bit earlier uh, quickly on um, how we had these price rises that kicked in and probably a lot of people are starting to see those in their household bills lately. But there are so many moving parts to this, um, and it's obviously such an important input into business costs, etc., um, as well as to uh, um, uh, the impact on household budgets. Um, so, it, and there's been a lot happening in the policy space. Absolutely. Um, so, um, so I thought I thought it was a really interesting um, uh, note that you you um, published this week. Um, oh, thank and, you. Oh, that's okay. Um, so, and it was good good sort of primer on on the issues um, uh, in the sector. Um, but why don't you take us through some of the some of the key takeouts uh, in terms of particularly? Um, let's start with the spending side, the household spending side. Sure, yeah. sure. Look, uh, you know, we, we published this piece because there's been, or partly because there's been so much in the media around the increase that households are going to. Face for electricity and gas bills. Uh, now, we are. there will also be quite substantial increases for small business and there will be some increases for biz, big businesses. But I really wanted to look at the household sector. And uh, certainly if you're in New South Wales, you would have seen headlines, New South Wales households are going to see a 20% increase in their electricity bills. Similar kind of headlines in South Australia. Uh, the ACT recently announced quite a significant increase as well. Um, and that is a significant increase in what is actually uh, a reasonably significant part of your household budget. Um, now, it actually accounts for about 3% of what you spend in a year, so that doesn't sound that big, uh, but it does tend to have a bit of a, a ticket effect as well. You know, you get your bill quarterly, it's large, uh, you can see it, so people really feel it. You know, people often say to me, inflation's not running at 2 it's running at 10%. My inflation's 10 but that's really the, the ticket items that they tend to see rather than the T-shirt they're buying at H&M, which is actually halved or less uh, in, in price. So so we wanted to have a look at it, and but we wanted to have a look at it um, in a really big picture kind of way. So what does it mean for the, the economy, right? Uh, and the first thing that, that came to our attention was um, the price increases households will face is going to vary enormously, uh, partly depending on what state you live in and partly depending on what kind of contract you have with your provider. Uh, so we actually don't think the average increase for the average household across the states uh, will be anywhere near 20%. We actually think it will be closer to 10 So a lot less, but not insignificant. Um, so for the average household, roughly they'll have about a $200 increase in their annual electricity bills. Um, now, that may not sound big in a nominal sense, but that is significant for low-income earners and actually uh, is sort of cumulative for other for middle-income and higher-income households on top of a whole range of things that have actually hit them. So we had... Well, this is where it gets interesting, right? Um, yeah. Because of the way this starts to feed through into other things, yeah. Well, yeah. There's, there's that second round effect, but there's also, you know, you had increase in your private 
um, medical insurance. Anyone with kids at, at fee-paying schools had uh, increases. We're expecting increases in tertiary education. We've had out-of-cycle rate hikes. Uh, there are a couple of things in the budget that are likely to uh, to hit household balance sheets. And, of course, households have record high debt and record low wage growth. So from our perspective, when you think about your electricity, there's not much you can do about how much you use. There might be a little bit. You can upgrade to more efficient appliances. You can tell your children to turn the lights off, but I find that quite ineffective. Um, so there's not much about what you can do, right? So it's just a hit that you have to wear. Now, in an environment of higher wage growth or strong house price growth, maybe you wear that. But our, our belief is and our assessment is that households will look for offsetting savings out of their discretionary spending. Mm. So what does that hit? That hits retail. And we've already talked about, and you know that I watch it very closely, uh, retailers are already struggling with competition and lack of pricing pressure. And our estimate is that households will actually knock that $200 off their discretionary spending, yeah. almost one for one. There's an excellent chart in that note. Um, we'll try and put on the uh, the link to it uh, on the uh, the webpage uh, for the uh, for the podcast. But uh, it just shows what the response was to the price increase to the uh, the carbon tax back in 2012 mm-hmm. uh, and just how quickly that went and impacted uh, discretionary spending. Uh, spending on, on non-essential items oh, – sorry, essential items was, was relatively unchanged, but the discretionary sector, no, things that you want, you want to go and have and enjoy – just went off a cliff. Now, um, I, I know that you said that the uh, the increases on this occasion aren't going to be as large in scale, but that still presents a real problem, particularly with uh, with the retail sector in its current state. Oh, absolutely. And of course, remember that consumption is sixty percent of the economy. Yeah. Uh, so that's important, right? Yeah. This is the thing. Um, is where it's um, um, so like we have an overall inflation picture, and we're sort of um, thinking of people thinking about balancing their household budgets, all that kind of stuff. But um, you you strip away a little bit from every household um, and add that, you know, and then look at the impact uh, uh, on the second biggest employment uh, category uh, in the country. And um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Joe, retail sector already shedding jobs. Um, Already we've got that um, downwards pressure on wages. Um, And uh, you see this kind of the the pressure just seems to be um, you have a relentless picture of of different kind of pressures for for the retail sector, uh, which again then feeds into all of those people, um, those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who work in the retail sector, um, a thinking about their wages and thinking about their job security, um, but then also that this becomes sort of self-perpetuating because they have less money then in, in turn to spend back out in the consumption sector and in, on those discretionary items. Absolutely. And unlike the foreign competition um, story, which actually in a sense benefits consumers because prices come down, uh, households um, will reduce their spending. But at the same time, and we didn't really cover this in our notes, small businesses will face an increase of around 20% mm. uh, in, the, in their bills. And so uh, if you're a retailer... Um, you can't pass that you can't pass that on at the moment, right? You've got almost no pricing power. So you actually have to absorb that cost and it's fairly much a fixed cost for retailers. So again, what do you do? Well, you certainly don't increase your employment or offer wage increases in that environment. Mm. And the other element for small businesses, of course, is um, there are some that can pass on price increases. So if 
uh, you know, outside of retail, uh, and I'm thinking here things that aren't open to foreign competition, whether that's hairdressers, dry cleaners, the vet, um, those sort of things, uh, they will also, uh, you know, face an increase in their electricity costs and they may look to pass it on. And we're already hearing anecdotes of that here and there. Mm. And of course, that's a, another cost impost for consumers because those things that, um, that you're consuming, and some of those are discretionary and some are not. I mean, you can launder your shirts, but many people choose not to. Um, you know, that's going to hit the household budget as well. Yeah, so the, the shirts was something we just quickly um, talked about before we, we came in there. And I um, was pointing out, yeah, sure, my uh, uh, laundry bill um, went up uh, recently, you know, for the shirts that I get. Um, uh, they get laundered uh, each week just because it's convenient and I don't have to iron them, you know. Um, but it used to be really cheap and I loved the value. And the, the prices went up and I'm like, okay, I can take this one. It's okay. Um, but then you, it does make you think, what's the level at which I would capitulate yes. and, you know, book in an hour of ironing time into my schedule each week sure. or whatever, you know? I'm, I'm um, going to go and say that it would be uh, your capitulation level would be significantly higher than what it is at the moment. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a very nicely learnt, laundered shirt on for those listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, there, there's one of the other charts in that, in that report, uh, Joe, it's just amazing when you look at, um, this just category by category. I, I think it's pretty close to um, to the breakdown of the basket that we get in the CPI. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but uh, it just shows the comparison of um, a whole, whole bunch of different um, uh, categories of spending. Um, so cigarettes, tobacco, health, um, you know, driving your car, um, insurance, etc. Um, but the, uh, electricity, gas and other fuel is by far um, the biggest um, percentage increase on a trend basis. Um, yeah, fastest those. growing increase in what you're spending your money on. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure that we get that um, that chart up with um with. I mean, we're looking at. I'm just trying to read it here. I think um, so around about 11 percent in a year and year basis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, which is um which is you know um that's obviously um really really significant. So um, I, can I just jump in? And yeah. I guess the, the other thing to just point out is we've had these increases on the first of July this year, mm. um, but it's not necessarily one and done. Uh, so the, the rise in electricity prices reflects a lot of things. As you said, there's a lot of moving parts, but a key driver of that has been rise in, in wholesale electricity prices. And again, some of that sort of uh, around policy and lack of forward planning and the closure of uh, some of the coal fire uh, power plants. But we actually expect further increases in wholesale prices over the year ahead, which means households could face another round of quite significant uh, increases in their electricity bills in the next 12 months, 12 so, to 18 months or so. So what is this? Is this a response to a sort of period where there wasn't um, perhaps as much investment, capital investment, um, that, that might have been needed to make sure that the network uh, was all functioning really efficiently? Um, or uh, I mean, what's going on? Oh, look, it's a, it's a little bit of that. I mean, it's been, I guess, um, some lack of forward planning in terms of uh, closing down coal-fired um, power plants and, uh, you know, some of – well, at least a key major one has been closed down with not much notice. Uh, so obviously that's disrupted the system. Uh, we have invested in alternative uh, fuels, uh, you know, um, wind and solar in particular, uh, but where the issue comes is, is peak flow. You know, they only produce electricity when it's windy or sunny, and if it's neither of those, which is 
all night, you know, in the case of solar, um, you need to be able to top that up. Uh, and the planning process is around topping up with gas-fired plants, but the price of gas actually has gone up uh, quite substantially uh, and and may well do so uh, even further as we start to export through those LNG plants. So, you know, there's there's quite a lot of moving parts there, um, yeah. but certainly there's there's been not much planning going going on. We do find a way to go and shoot ourselves in the foot, don't we? We... Um it's just sitting here listening to the conversation. We've got these vast natural resources. Um, we're talking about the opportunity we've got uh, in Asia in our region, and we find a way to go and make things, and <laughs> make things that we haven't possessed make so expensive compared to the rest of the world. It's just mind-boggling. Mm. We're talking about an economy where, you know, you think about the investment that's required and everything else. Okay, maybe it's the time to question Maybe we should need to invest more in these areas and go and get it up to scratch and get baseload power so it's legit and it will work all the time. Get it sorted, yeah. Because that way we can have certainty for households and businesses and whatnot and potentially not have these ridiculously large price increases, which at a time when the Australian economy is already weak, does not need. No. And this, no, is, and this, and this is completely self-inflicted. This has got nothing to do with you no know, factors out of our control. This is decisions that policymakers in Australia have made, and it is – no, it's ridiculous. But also having the, having the eye off the ball. Um, so you had all those contracts. Famously, a couple of months ago, we discovered that you know the, the contracts for LNG exports to Japan um, were locked in at a price where you know it's it's more expensive um, now to buy that uh, LNG for the domestic market um, than put it on a giant ship and send it um, you know up across the Pacific. It, stir, it stirs me up and it should stir the populace up as well because it's ridiculous. Mm. It is utterly ridiculous. I know we're talking a lot about fossil fuels and, and whatnot and there is an ideological push to go and be green and be clean and we should do that. But if it comes at the cost for the economy and people's jobs and whatnot in the interim, to me it makes absolutely no sense. I can't believe that you, know, you can go and have these contracts where you can go in and say we're going to export LNG to Korea or to, uh, to China or Japan and make it so it's none of us none of us in Australia can go and access those markets so the price skyrockets yeah, yeah. Uh, to me it just you know it's yeah, beyond yeah. ridiculous. And there's the reliability issue on the grid. That's critical. Yeah. You know, you talk to anyone in yeah. South Australia, whether it's a household or a business, and, you know, extremely frustrating for them around um, supply and being able to plan and, and knowing where it's going. So yeah. absolutely critical. And let's, and let's see how we go without Hazelwood in the uh, the upcoming summer. I think it's going to be very interesting to see, particularly if we, uh, we get those scorching 40-degree-plus days, which everyone in, uh, in Melbourne and uh, in Adelaide can attest to happens quite frequently. Yeah. And, and we'll see how the grid Sometimes goes. In, in Adelaide, they can have a, a week or more of that um, kind Absolutely. of thing. I did have a friend in Adelaide, um, you know, when it was all happening a few months ago, you know, texted me saying, you know, you know he's um, having lucky, a Lucky something. he charged his phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was saying exactly pretty much that. He was just... You know, um, you know, I really like it here in Adelaide. We've got a great lifestyle. Um, you know, it's not as uh, busy um, as Sydney, obviously, and obviously we don't have um, some of those fancy pants things that you guys have over in the eastern states, like electricity. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, David Scott's been with us as always this week. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure to be back, and uh, yeah, looking forward to next week. And our guest uh, has been senior economist at ANZ, uh, Joanne Masters. Joanne, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, we're all on Twitter individually. Uh, myself, Paul Colgan, David Scott, and Joanne Masters. Um, you can find the show on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review, and we'll catch you next time.
podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.